the veil from the eyes of your people. And grant that we may know you and make you fully known. Amen. <laughs> Days very short, probably something I could preach an entire series now. But I simply today want to focus on the first two verses and take a glimpse to the preceding verses that are not in the lesson for the day, and then remind us why it is that some of those we love will respond to Christianity's message and others will not. And finally, what is our goal? First, at the annual meeting, you will recall that I reminded you that the decline of the church in this era is not our fault. We are simply living in an era for which the textbooks of how to develop congregations simply have not been written yet. We live in a time of seismic change. You might even say, Exponential change. One little change begets another change until finally you seem like you're drowning in changes. For many, it's just too much. Seniors who are overwhelmed by the constantly changing world of technology, or even young folks ready to leave the nest are intensely fearful of the world. Young professionals wonder if their career, which is often predicated by a costly degree process, will even be a viable way of earning a living in the future. It's a time of great gifts. Paul wrote in another time of great gifts. Jewish history had gone in a collision course with Rome. This was the era of technological improvements like aqueducts and public road projects, which of course all roads lead to Rome. It was a time when simple developments like running water and soap had people thinking about public health. It was a time of hedonism and a time of piety. You might say, in uh, Charles Dickens' words, it was the best of times. <laughs> So great achievement, technological advancement, and general anxiety to which Paul writes a letter. In fact, Paul begins chapter 4 of what is actually his third letter to the church in Corinth. The first letter has been lost to time, even before they gathered to assemble the books to decide what was going to be in the biblical. This is his third letter. He writes so much to this church because, well, it's problematic. It was a port city. It was a Silicon Valley of new ideas and thoughts and self-absorption of the day. And yet, Paul loved it. He begins the chapter this way. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. Say with me, people of God, we do not lose heart. 
We renounce the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves and our conscience and everyone to the sight of God. So you see, Paul gets what leading the church in a scary time where transformation is all around him, and he asserts that the way to go forward is to remember that God has put us to that work in the first place. Keep your nose clean. Be above board. If God's own words don't fit the time when you are trying to have a message that is acceptable, don't twist them or make them what God did not intend them to be. Be consistent. And we see a lot of this in today's world. The false prophets of today's pulpits that twist to suit themselves or sell more books. They have the road of the church is quite often the road to the cross, the road to self-emptying, sacrificial love, which is then the case where we are going to be hated, not loved. And we most certainly will not feel validated. The anxious, changing world of 2024 is no different than Paul's day. And we wrestle with the fact that we cannot see and we ask, why does it seem like the gospel is veiled to a nation that so desperately needs it? Well, let's consider some quotes from some folks I've heard from in the last few weeks. Here's how I would review them. Add these to your toolbox when you hear these statements. Christianity is a crutch. How many of you all have heard that? the opiate of the masses. So Marx thought that religion is an invention designed for people incapable of dealing with the pressure of everyday life. To which I say, I'm guilty. I can't do life on my own. And newsflash, Carl, neither can you. Why is there suffering? How many of y'all heard that? Suffering is a signal that something is wrong. Pain is not normal. We may hear God speak in times of pleasure, but it's often said he shouts in times of pain. Christianity identifies suffering with redemption. Jesus takes on our suffering as part of the humanity that he bears in order to take the pain completely from us. Sadly, many hold pleasure, though, as their chief pain in life. How dare we speak up against things that we know are pleasurable? Simply because, having known God, we actually know that some of these things we think to be pleasurable are actually self-destructive. Let's make it desperate. If there's a hell, why would a loving God send people there? How many of you all have heard this one? Okay. Well, folks, I'm going to explain this logic using the logic of an atheist. 
For God to force people to go to heaven against their wishes wouldn't be heaven, it would be hell. And that is John Paul's sarcasm. You know that the gates of hell are locked from the inside by the free choices of men and women. To which I would clarify, those who will find themselves in hell are those who want nothing to do with heaven. You can't end up there accidentally. So having looked at these common questions, we really find the same answers. The world, the flesh, and the devil is a blinding influence. Let's remember that in this fallen world, those forces are normative, not accidental, and to be expected. Paul reminds us that the God of this world that is the false deity of pleasure or self-determinism and ego is the evil one. He has blinded them. Folks, the brokenness of this world is perennial with the grass. It just seems as though we are seeing a darker vision of it in this era of post-pandemic. We fail to understand how we fit in a changing world, but I assure you, the evil one understands job description perfectly. Things get busier and busier and more distracting. Well, I'm reminded of the bumper sticker that I used to see down south. Perhaps you've seen it too. Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> Doesn't that get it? We're all distracted. We don't have to look at it. We are in the midst of that busyness. So then lastly, we look at verse 5, and we see the battle between light and darkness. Light and darkness are used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as metaphors for the struggle between good and evil, order and chaos, security, danger, joy and sorrow, truth and untruth, life and death, salvation or condemnation. And so even our culture, even in this culture, we talk about keeping people in the dark. That's the evil one's commitment. To understand how to counter this problem, we need to look back in the Old Testament, Exodus 33. Moses wanted to see God's glory, but God said humans may not see me and live. However, God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his own hand while his glory passed by. And Moses was able to see God's back, not his face. In other words, Moses got a glimpse of where God had already been, but not what he was doing at that time. And when he comes down from that mountain, Moses has to veil his face to appear before the people. That way they would not see the longer he was away from God, the more the glory that had shown in his face would depart. The evil one fails the gospel in order to cheat human beings from experiencing the brightness of God. Folks, we live in a busy world. We live amidst a confused people. You might say, the world around us is blinding. 
We wrestle with the eternal things that try to keep us alive. We fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our friends and our loved ones who cannot see are blinded. You may have been having a nurturing conversation about Jesus for years and years and seen nothing in your friends and family. Jesus said that was like casting seed in the midst of thorns where the cares and occupations of this life choke it out, but it's not the sower's fault. Our job is to continue to proclaim, by God's mercy, his own message in thought and word and deed. And all we can do is pray for those people who are blind. And we must be consistent in prayer and action. Let them see in us what a redeemed life looks like. This isn't about you or me or the failure of the church. I'll say this again. This is not your fault. The one thing that the evil one has is to hatefully confuse God's creation. So our job is to let his light shine out of darkness. And how will God do that? Through us. We bear the light. Let our light shine.